Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. All right, if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, welcome to Mercy Hill. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you here in person. I know some of you are joining us online. Uh, we got a packed day today. Uh, so at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate in baptism. If I don't get a chance to tell you this later in the service, I just want to remind you uh, that baptism is a joyous occasion, and we express a lot of joy together as a church when somebody's baptized, all right? And so you got full permission uh, to hoot and holler and clap and yell. I don't want to be the only one giving some woo-hoos, all right? And so uh, I want to make sure that you guys know you have uh, not only that permission, but we encourage that uh, when we observe baptism together. Uh, We're in the book of Mark. Uh, We've been in the book of Mark uh, for the past several months. Uh, We are now in chapter 14. Here's what's going on in chapter 14. Uh, Last week, we talked about uh, the Last Supper, so this time where Jesus observed this Passover meal with his disciples We found out in that meal uh, that one of the disciples Jesus knows is going to betray him, and the the cogs are already turning to put that in motion. So Jesus, where we pick up in the story, is leaving uh, the Last Supper, immediately following the Last Supper, and going for a time of prayer with his disciples, minus Judas, who is the one who's going to betray him. It's a famous story in the scripture. Let's look at it together. We're just going to jump right in. You guys cool if we jump right in? You don't need a funny story today, do you? All right, good. Let's jump in. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane just means oil press. Uh, And so more than likely, this location's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, So it's an olive grove uh, that is probably this section is uh, uh, sectioned off by a fence and a press is there. So it's a secluded spot. Uh, More than likely, this is a place Jesus and his disciples frequent. All right, verse uh, 32. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, today, uh, as we look into your word together as a church, uh, we just ask that you would illuminate, uh, shine a light on what is there uh, so that we could see the truth and that you would illuminate and shine a light on our hearts so that we could apply the truth. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this passage, we get a very unique glimpse into Jesus. We see him overwhelmed with sorrow. 
Uh, he says, in fact, that he is, uh, uh, Mark writes, he's greatly distressed and troubled. Uh, the phrase there actually indicates that he is astonished by terror. You could even uh, 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 hear, uh, you remember Mark is Peter's eyewitness account that Mark is writing down. And so this is something that Peter saw. When Jesus pulled him and, and James and John uh, aside to continue to pray with him, Peter is telling Mark here, it was different. It was a sorrow that we had never seen before. It was a, almost a type of terror. And then Jesus even expresses that out loud. He says he's very sorrowful, even unto death. We get this insight into the emotional life of Jesus. We see clearly his humanity. Now, we are, as Christians, uh, we belong to a long historic view on who Jesus is uh, that's not anything new and is captured in the scripture. Here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So he's not halvesies, right? Does that make sense? Uh, he's not, you know, like a liger, you know, like half lion, part tiger. That's not what we're talking about. Both fully God and fully man. That Jesus did not lose his divinity in any way when he was in person here on earth and that he had the full experience of being a human. We call this the incarnation. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write that down, the incarnation. And that word just simply means in the flesh. I love J.I. Packer. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. That Jesus could be both fully man and fully human. But what that means is what we see in this passage is that Jesus fully experienced life as a man. That he had physical limitations. Like we see that he gets tired and needs sleep or that he is hungry and needs food, just like us. And he also has an emotional life. He experienced joy. He experiences joy and happiness. We see him having the feeling of compassion we see him expressing disgust when people are being taken advantage of. He experiences loneliness. We see that in this passage. Sadness and sorrow. Here, extreme sorrow. So what is it that is making Jesus so sorrowful in this text? Well, Mark points out something, uh, and Jesus points out something. Mark writes for us that the hour might pass from him. He records that that's what Jesus was praying. The hour might pass. What is this thing, the hour? By the hour, what Jesus means is that it's the appointed time for him to accomplish his mission. Jesus is looking to the very near future, and he knows that his death on the cross is coming and coming soon, and he's distressed. The time is now. Now, Jesus has known this was the plan the entire time. How many times have we seen in the book of Mark already Jesus say, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again, right? And the disciples are like, huh? So Jesus isn't caught by surprise that this was the plan, but Jesus instead is feeling the weight of it in this moment, that it's imminent, that it's coming. The second thing, though, in Jesus' prayer uh, that we see in Jesus' own words, the hour has arrived, but he says to God when he prays, remove this cup from me. 
Now, the cup is used as a metaphor on numerous places in the Old Testament of God's wrath or God's just punishment of sinners. One example would be in Isaiah chapter 51, where the prophet Isaiah writes this, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So this metaphor is used to describe God's wrath. You're like, hold up, Brendan. I thought we were one of those cool contemporary churches uh, where we don't talk about things like God's wrath. So what the heck is that? Now, the picture in most of your minds is some sort of like Zeus-like God figure, right? Like throwing lightning bolts down from heaven to punish people who get out of line. Or perhaps God's wrath you feel like is the worst teacher you had in elementary school, right? Who experiences the eternal, like terrible face. You know what I mean? Like angry all the time. And if you got out of line, you got off of your square in the hallway, you were quickly met with anger and wrath. But that's not actually the picture that we get in the scripture of God's wrath. God's wrath instead is, is rooted in God's hatred for sin. God's hatred for sin. That he intensely hate all sin. And you go, well, why? Why does God hate sin? Because I'll be honest with you, Brandon, sometimes I really like it. You know? Like, so why is God against it? Well, because if we go all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what we see is that sin is an attack on God's good creation. That sin is the thing that is ripping apart God's world. That sin is the thing that is destroying God's people. It's unraveling his design for the way the world was intended to work. That sin hurts people. Sin fractures relationship. Sin causes violence. Sin fuels racism and hatred between people. That sin is the root cause of why God and his people are separated. And God hates that. And I think we should all at that point go, amen, what a good God. They would hate things that are destroying what he longs for us. Now, hatred sounds like a strong emotion for God. So let's try to fine-tune this picture a little bit. When the Bible talks of God's wrath, his hatred against wickedness or his hatred against wrongdoing, rarely is it one-sided. In fact, in most places, the writers of Scripture point out that the hatred is two-sided, that the wicked or wickedness is hatred also against God. It is a rejection of God, a wish that God would no longer exist or at least stop telling me what to do. Not only that, but I think it's a question we have to ask, what would God be like if he didn't hate sin? What if God was totally cool with the destruction of the creation that he loves? What if God was completely fine with the ways that you have been sinned against or someone has wronged you? What if God just simply shrugged his shoulders at the objectification of women in our society? What if God just went, I don't know what I could do about it, with instances of, of racism or bigotry? What if God turned a blind eye to things that we experience like genocide? Well, 
that seems to say something about God's character that we don't want to say, right? But not only that, is the Bible gives us a picture of God's wrath, not as God flying off the handle, not as God being a petulant toddler who, not, who doesn't get his way. Instead, that God is rightly administering justice. That God is rightly punishing wrongdoing. Now, we often think about God's wrath in the opposite, as the opposite of his love, right? Love is on one side, wrath is on another side. Uh, but that's not true. Uh, and you know that from your everyday life. Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. Uh, so about a little over a month ago, um, I, I'm, uh, I, I usually am supposed to ask permission for family stories. I didn't ask permission for this one. So I'm not going to give you a ton of details. And I just need you to not ask anybody in my family about this. All right? Can you do this with me? Uh, one of my children uh, received what was labeled as an inappropriate note at school. Uh, when it was recounted to me what the note said, let me just tell you, it was way more than inappropriate. And I love this particular child immensely, so do you know what my reaction was? Anger. Because my kid had been wronged. Now, uh, we live in a modern world uh, where it is inappropriate for me as a father to pull someone else's kid out of their home and beat them mercilessly. <laughs> so I had to restrain myself, which is good, right? Thank you, John. <laughs> but could you imagine if my kid saw me respond with a shrug of my shoulders? It's just the way the world is, get over it. How much damage would have been done in that moment? Now, to make it even worse, the school did not inform us that this event happened, which made me even more angry. And I thought, here's what I'll do. Uh, instead of beating up a small child, I'm going to the school right now, kicking the door in, right? And I'm screaming at a principal. You know what I mean? And it might get violent, you know? If the principal of this school was a man, it might have gotten violent. But again, that's not acceptable, right? So I didn't do that. But I did send a very strongly worded email. where I expressed how inappropriate was not the right term, I clearly quoted. I said something, in a, quoting. I mean, I wanted to make sure everyone knew what the note said. This is what it said. This is why it's wrong. And I am, the way it concluded was this. I expect that we won't have another instance like this and not hear from you. I think that's fair, right? Now, um, was that right or was that wrong? Or maybe let me ask you this question. 
was that a product of my deep hatred for my child or of love? Do you, do you see the way these things are connected? Which is why Millard Erickson says this, if love does not include justice, it is mere sentimentality. Here's what he means. If you want God to be the Hallmark Channel, that's great. But that God doesn't love you. So how does God's wrath works? How does it work? Works. How does God's wrath work? Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1. Here's what he says is that God's wrath is visited on people who have the truth but suppress it. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Here's what he's saying. Think about it. He's not saying that God has lightning bolts in the sky, and if you step out of line, he's throwing them. He's saying God's wrath is expressed against people who know what is true but cover it up so they can continue to get away with what they want to get away with. It is the continual denial that anything is even wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but in light of the past three or four years, that kind of hits me differently. That we as a society have seen cover-up after cover-up, the suppression of truth after suppression of truth, and how have we responded? With outrage that our political leaders could do that, that church leaders could do that, that people in the entertainment industry that we thought were wholesome could do something like that. And at the suppression of the truth, what do we express? Wrath. Justice must be done. And so Paul says, that's what incurs God's wrath. The suppression, continual suppression of the truth and then interestingly, what he points out in the rest of the chapter is that it's not lightning bolts from the sky. It's maybe something even more terrifying when you think about it. He says what God does is gives us over to what we think we want. That the picture of God's wrath is like parents who have repeatedly tried and tried and tried to help a wayward child who finally say, we've bailed you out of jail. We've tried to set guardrails to help you for your good. But now we are going to let you feel the full weight of your choices. So we're not going to say anything else about your friends. We're not going to give you any sort of correction on your life choices anymore. We're not giving you any more money to get you back into school. We're not bailing you out of jail anymore. You're just going to have to own your own choices. Sometimes theologians call this God's passive wrath. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, uh, Paul says he gives us over to the lust of our hearts, that in this giving over, even our own ability to love, the center of our affections is hardened over. Verse 26, he says, it gives us over to our dishonorable passions that we will chase down any desire that we see without any sort of restraint. 
And this giving over is also a giving over to a debased mind. Remember, meaning it affects the way that we think and see the world around us. In other words, we can't love God and others rightly. We can't chase our dreams correctly. We want the wrong things. And that we experience the full weight of our choices. Our brains don't even work right. I think I'd rather have lightning bolts. Right? But the good news, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, is that's not the experience most of us have. Instead, our experience, he says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 is this. Or do you presume, he says, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? And patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you hear what he just said? The Romans chapter 1, while in some ways is all of us, that the way that God draws us to himself is not by threats or anger, but by his patience and kindness extended to us over and over and over and over and over again. That he is much more apt to draw us to himself by his kindness than under threat. And maybe you go, hey, Brandon, that's great. I heard about this Old Testament wrath God and Paul says some crazy things. I'm not sure I'm quite buying it yet. Well, John chapter three. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Meaning, God's just judgment, punishment of sin remains on the person who rejects Jesus. In fact, I would argue what Jesus just said is the harshest thing that we've seen in the scripture so far. But this leads us then back to the text. Back to why Jesus is so terrified. Because Jesus is making a way for those who will trust in him instead of their own works or their own righteousness. And Jesus is terrified, scared, overwhelmed with sorrow in Gethsemane, not because of the impending physical death and suffering that he will experience on the cross, but because Jesus is going to fully absorb all of God's wrath against all sin, and he's going to absorb it all in himself. On the cross, Jesus will experience more than physical death. He'll experience the full weight of God's righteous judgment against sin. He is drinking every drop of the cup from Isaiah 51. And he says, could you please, God, remove this from me? In, in other words, is it possible there is another way? Not my will, though. Your will be done. And here's what I think. I agree with Jesus. Doesn't it seem like there should be another way? Shouldn't there be some other sort of way? 
Paul says in Romans chapter 3, the reason there's no other way uh, is because we have charges against God. We, he says, can say that God is unjust. You go, how's that? He says, because in the past, God overlooked sin. You hear that? Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. That we should rise up together, look God in his face, and tell them that he's not a just judge precisely because throughout all of human history, he has forgiven guilty people. That if we had a Senate confirmation hearing, we would have a lot more ammunition against God than some reduced sentences. We would say, you are corrupt and unjust because you let people off the hook. You let Abraham get away with mistreating his slave. And you forgave him and used him anyway, and he got eternal life. You let Moses get away with murdering someone from another race, a racial murder. You let him get away with it. And you forgave him and used him, and he got eternal life. You let David... You forgave David for adultery. He's still king after that whole thing. You let Solomon violate the sacredness of marriage over and over and over again, and you forgave him. What kind of God are you? And then Paul says, but that's why Jesus came. Familiarly, he says, for there's no distinction between people for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified, that word means made right by his grace as a gift. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation, that word means a substitutionary atonement by his blood to be, he says, received not by works but by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what he says. This is why the cup and the hour were required of Jesus because God on the cross justly, completely, wholly punished sin. So there would be no charge against God for being a judge that doesn't go through with punishment. He did it on the cross. God would be just. And at the same time, God could be the justifier. God could also be the one that declares sinners in the right with him. That's why the hour and the cup are the only way. That Jesus willingly suffered so you and I could be in a right relationship with a good just God. That's what's going on in Gethsemane. Now, some of you, no doubt, because you're a well-educated crowd, have heard this line of reasoning and this story before. And you perhaps would like to join in with famous atheists like Richard Dawkins, some Christians too, and say, I'll tell you what this is then. Jesus absorbing the full wrath of God on the cross is cosmic child abuse. Which seems like a great argument, right? If Jesus is the son of God, 
God the Father is pouring out all judgment for sin in the place of sinners on Jesus. Why isn't this just cosmic child abuse? Because, and the people who make this argument know what it is. It's a rhetorical trick. It denies the Trinity. Remember the incarnation? Jesus is God. We've talked about this earlier, Mark. We use the phrase son of God not to indicate that Jesus was made or created or biologically birthed out of God, but that Jesus is a person in the Trinity who is marked by his obedience to God the Father. And so instead, what we have is not an angry father pouring out his wrath on a son. What we have is God himself taking our place on the cross. That God is both the punishment giver and the punishment taker. And that is unbelievably good news. So this is good news for you and me today. That no matter where you are, where you're from, no matter what you've done, if you do not have a right relationship with God, the good news is, if you trust Jesus, you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. He said, I'm taking the cup, every last drop, for you in your place. He already did it. And what he asks of you is just, again, John chapter 3, that you would believe or trust in his substitutionary atonement for you in your place. This is good news for us in our community. Because that means we get to be a church. We don't have to make people pay here. <laughs> we don't have to be vengeful or spiteful. There is no need for us to be a community of people who treat each other with wrath. It's all been paid. It's done. And hopefully it's good news for our larger community. Because this means we get to be a church that doesn't overlook wrongdoing, but gets to speak to wrongdoing with unbelievable grace. We don't have to overlook sin. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to suppress the truth. We can just say, we are guilty. And my only hope is Jesus in my place. And we get to look at our friends and neighbors and coworkers and say, and the good news is you can get in on this too. This is for you too. So today, if you don't know Jesus, let me just remind you, this is great news. God loves you. He loves you so much that he's not willing to allow sin to continue to destroy you. He loves you so much, he sent his son to pay the penalty for sin for you in your place. And what he asks of you is real simple. You hear the good news of Jesus and you would just believe it, trust it, come to know Christ. And for those of us in the church, this is good news, man. <laughs> good news for us. We should be the happiest people on the face of the planet. This isn't our future. Jesus did this for us in our place. Let me pray for us. Father. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. 
To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.